I don't know if you've noticed or not, but the news headlines have not been exactly joyous lately. Uh, And so I thought it would be appropriate for me to avoid any sort of controversy and begin my sermon with Colin Kaepernick. And as the tension fills the room, I'll wait for it to get to the back rows. I must confess that the irony of this morning's lectionary text is not lost on me, and hopefully it is not lost on you as well, where we find in the apostles' commentary on this great hymn of Christ, or hymn to Christ, he says in the 10th verse that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend. I'm not here, and I want everybody to take a nice big sigh of relief. I'm not here to offer commentary on what athletes should be doing on Sunday other than worship of God. Um, But I will say this. I think what we're seeing on some fundamental level is an offense against cultural liturgy. There is liturgy in the church, and when people hear the word liturgy, they think church And that's true, but it's unfortunate because liturgy is something that permeates all aspects of culture. And I couldn't help but think this week of a book that I had read, and I want to read a passage from this book uh, called Desiring the Kingdom by James Smith. And in this particular section, he's talking about cultural liturgies of the state, Please stand for the national anthem. Not not now, but. (laughs) The premise and the context here is that liturgy is permeated throughout life. We're just not conscious of it. We're not aware of it. Consider the rituals that constitute the opening. And by the way, this was written a few years ago, so this is not written this week. Consider the rituals that constitute the opening of a professional sporting event, such as an NFL football game or a NASCAR race. Nobody's getting away here. Even if only viewed on television, in a massive space thronging with people eager for the beginning of the event, a crowd of 100,000 people can be brought into remarkable placidity by the exhortation, please stand for the national anthem. It's a liturgical one-liner. Like parishioners who know all the motions of the mass by heart, these fans instinctively and automatically rise together. They remove their caps in many place, a hand over their heart, as an artist or group sings a rendition of one of the world's most affecting national anthems. This is written by a Canadian, by the way. Laden with military themes such as those singing it are transposed into battle the identity of the nation being wrapped up in its revolutionary beginnings and legacy of military power. Perhaps even more importantly, this rehearses and renews the myth. That doesn't mean it's untrue. It just means the story of national identity forged by blood sacrifice. 
the sounds of the anthem are usually accompanied by big dramatic sights of the flag. A star-spangled banner the size of a football field is unfurled across the field by a small army of young people whose movements make it undulate as if blowing in the winds of battle, proudly defiant but almost dripping with blood in those red lines across it. And almost always the concluding crescendo of the anthem announcing that this is the land of the free and the home of the brave is accompanied by a flyover from military aircraft Whether the searing slice of F-15 fighter jets across the sky or the pulsating presence of Apache helicopters chugging across the airspace of the stadium, the presence of the aircraft has a double effect. It concretizes, try that word on, right? The militarism of the anthem and the flag while also making the scene something that is felt. As the sounds of the jets or the choppers, it's a kind of noise one picks up in the chest more than the ears. A crowd larger than many American cities then erupts in cheers and applause as this ritual of national unity has united even fans of opposing teams. I'm suggesting that this constitutes a liturgy because it is a material ritual of ultimate concern. Through a multi-sensory display, the ritual both powerfully and subtly moves us and in doing so implants within us a certain reverence and awe, a learned deference to an ideal that might someday call for our sacrifice. This is true not only of professional sports, the rituals of national identity and nationalism, have, they've almost been indelibly inscribed into the rituals of athletics from little league to high school football, which I had the joy of experiencing last week here in Jinx. As is well known, Stanley Hauerwas once quipped, Friday night high school football is the most significant liturgical event in Texas. The imagination couples these spectacular displays at professional sporting events with the simplicity of the anthem and color guard at a high school football game, and together they build up a story of national unity forged by battle and sacrifice. Over time, these rituals have a cumulative, albeit covert, effect on our imaginary or imagination. What I just read to you is not an indictment against the national anthem, the Pledge of Allegiance, or patriotism. What I read to you is an explanation of liturgy and how it works. What I read to you is a description of the power of ritual acts to train our imaginations and the way that we think. Jamie Smith goes on to say in another section of his book, liturgies are ritual practices that function as pedagogies, which is just sort of like teachings of ultimate desire. And those liturgies are not necessarily explicitly spiritual or theological or Christian. They're all around us. The shopping mall has a liturgy. It has its own unique architecture. It has its own muzak. All of it's very intentional. There are missionaries at the mall. You know that, right? Evangelists. And they come out and they offer you samples of things and they try to woo you over. Yes, sometimes it's just a poster. They have tracks. They're called, you know, coupons. They have, right? They're passing all these things out. 
And what's interesting is, in some ways, retailers and governments understand liturgy better than many Christians. You see, liturgies are part of a very ancient way of being human. And so we're going to be speaking this Sunday and next Sunday on the idea of ancient wisdom and childlike joy. Ancient wisdom and childlike joy. And the liturgies bring to us a sense of ancient wisdom. And if Colin Kaepernick was my first point, my second point would be cocktails. So I hope you're tracking with me. Now, there are people who don't like cocktails, and there are people who do. There are people who are teetotalers and people who are not. Among the people who are not, some people like their whiskey straight. Others like it mixed with other things and covered up with this juice and what have you. But here's the thing about cocktails. There can be two approaches to cocktails, among many, but two primary approaches. And one is to be innovative and to try new combinations of ingredients. The other, though, is one where we discover old cocktail recipes that have not been popular for years. And they're combinations that have been around for a long time. We just didn't know it. And those mixologists, as they like to be called, bring them back to consciousness. And so you're trying drinks that maybe your great-grandparents, before they were saved, used to drink. (laughs) Right? And it's not that it's new, it's that it's new to you. And I think a lot of us that come up in free church or low church or Baptists or Pentecostals, we thought, first of all, we didn't have any liturgy in our churches, right? Wrong. That was a trick. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Every church has liturgy. The only issue is, where did it come from, and is it very helpful? See, I grew up in church where we didn't have somebody come and offer us a beautiful call to worship. Somebody would eventually get to the pulpit, and I'm going to need a little bit of audience participation. Don't worry. Nobody will judge you if you can help me do this, all right? And we'd come up to the front of the church, and we would say, praise the Lord. My wife knows the line. But there would be some sort of, that was, that was our call to worship. Praise the Lord, and everybody would say, he is worthy. Or we go into church and we say, God is good. And all the time, see, some of y'all know. You just revealed your hand now. I know who I'm working with. Um, these are our liturgies. Where they came from is a mystery, and their helpfulness is yet to be determined. But they exist. They exist. And what happens is you come into a church like Sanctuary, and we start using a word like convergence, And the thought is, oh, well, this is a new thing. You're now going to add in these written prayers and ancient texts. And like a cocktail, you're being innovative. And you're sort of making this new drink that the world has never tasted before. And I want to encourage you this morning that what's so beautiful about Sanctuary is that we are not inventing a new cocktail here. We are pulling out a very classic, very ancient cocktail that goes back to the book of Acts, goes back to the first century, definitely to the first century, highlighted most recently by one uh, John Wesley and his work 200 plus years ago, where the idea that we can have the ancient liturgies of the church, the prayers of the church, the flow of a corporate worship gathering, we can have an evangelical expression that approaches scripture robustly, 
calls for evangelism. And we can have the move of the Spirit and the fresh blowing of God in the house that maybe will make us uncomfortable because it's a little bit unpredictable. Bringing these three things together is not some brand new cocktail that Bishop Ed invented in his spare time. This has been the work of the Spirit in the church for many, many years. And what we've done is, in some instances, sadly, my opinion, I think we've let those recipes sort of sit on a dusty shelf somewhere, and we've become focused almost with a myopic sense of, well, this is the one way to do it. What I want to suggest this morning is not just sort of information for you, although I'd like to bring some information and some understanding, but I'd like to also just share a little bit of my personal testimony And I feel like this could be helpful to some of us who either don't understand liturgical things, maybe tolerate liturgical things, who think that right now what we're doing is church, and then when I'm done preaching, we'll just kind of do some stuff at the end of the service. I want to help by sharing my own story. And so if I started with Colin Kaepernick and then cocktails, I now would like to go to James Bond. So... Let's just keep moving. I was going to call the sermon shaken, not stirred, but, but so here's the thing. Um, there are certain qualities, certain practices, certain activities that we often see and presume to be mutually ex- exclusive. In James Bond, you see a guy who's a cigarette-smoking, fist-fighting, car-chase-driving dude who also happens to know fine wines good tailors, and geopolitics. Very savvy. And I'm convinced that's why James Bond is the best. None of this Jason Bourne stuff. James Bond is the best. Because James Bond, and just please please just cooperate because I'm new and just make me feel good. James Bond brings together things that we don't normally think go together. You know, it's like you're a Pabst Blue Ribbon guy or you're a single malt guy right? You're a a geek or you're a jock, right? And James Bond says, no, he embodies this sort of both end that I think makes him so compelling to people for now some 60 years, is that in James Bond, we see this embodiment of things that we normally don't think go together. And I would suggest that we have a problem in church to overcome depending on how we've been brought up and how we come to this room this morning, you have expectations as to how this service should go. And God forbid we violate that. Because in our mind, certain things don't go together. You don't, you're not our father people and tongues talking people. You're not lectionary people and 30 minute sermon people. Those things don't go together, except sometimes in James Bond they do. You can have ancient wisdom and childlike joy in the same person. The same Jesus who calls us to be like children if we're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven is the same Jesus who told us to be wise as serpents. And these things, we often say, well, if I, if I grab the one, it's going to displace the other. And it leads to a lot of fear. Well, if we pray that prayer every Sunday in church, we're going to become Catholic. (laughs) 
Are you tracking with what I'm saying this morning? Like the, with these things that somehow if we bring them together, this is going to be harmful because if the one comes, it has to push the other one out by default. It's what's going to happen. I'm here to say not necessarily. I needed to have my own James Bond moment. I needed to have my own moment where I saw that this world of the ancient liturgies, this world of the the classical Christian expression, especially for corporate worship, I needed to see that somehow it could be embodied with the spiritual sensibilities that I had grown up in. And so almost 20 years ago, somebody brought me a VHS tape. Does anybody remember a VHS tape? What they, right? They brought me a VHS tape, and it, it was of a sermon that was preached in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the Maybe Center for the Azusa Conference with Carlton Pearson. And so I popped this VHS tape into the player, and on the screen emerges a guy who looks like he could have been a cousin of mine, but he was draped in this gray bishopy-looking robe with a cross about three times the size of this one. And when he started to preach, I, he, he looked strange, but he sounded like T.D. Jakes. And I thought, this is James Bond. This is a guy who somehow knows a Chateau 58, but also can punch a guy in the mouth. Is, am I making sense to you? I hope I am, because this is, this is a lowbrow sermon this morning. It's lowbrow. His name was Veron Ash, and he was an archbishop in the Eastern Orthodox Church who had been raised in the Apostolic Pentecostal Church. And what happened was I got to see an incarnation. I got to see an embodiment of someone who, on the one hand, was submitted to the historic traditions of the church, but it was also moving in the life of the spirit that was very personal, very palpable, very present. In Veron, I saw these things come together and, and realized that ancient tradition was not a threat to the Holy Spirit inside of me. I realized that routine, ritual, liturgical practices didn't have to kill the life and the flowering sense of God that was inside of me. As a matter of fact, it could enhance it because I saw it before my eyes. I grew up in a situation where, and and, uh, uh, the occasional amen would also help me to let me know I'm not alone here. So I'm asking in advance to clear your throat and maybe say amen to this. I grew up in a church where every Sunday we came looking for a move of God, right? And every Sunday I needed a God experience. And every Sunday as a worship leader, I had to outdo last Sunday with a greater sense of a move of God and a God experience. And if we really got it good, people would walk outside the building and they would say, we had church today. And I'm going to be honest with you, it wore me out. It wore me out because, listen to me, in that situation, 
the validity of a worship experience was based on my subjective sense that God showed up. In essence, I was walking by feel, not by faith. And if it got really loud, which by the way, has never happened in this room. I'm just letting you know. (laughs) We can deal with that. If you want it loud, I can make that happen. Don't worry, I I will not push myself on you. My point being, if it got really loud, if it went really long, somehow it was good. For a lot, and some people complain, but, and that's how we knew they were spiritually mature. They were complaining, you know. If you were really filled with the Spirit of God, you would have loved it loud and long, just like, you know, we did it. But what happens is there's a bit of exhaustion, psychological pressure that you have to live with as a leader and as a participant. Because here's what happens. Eventually, you're going to come to church, and you're not going to have a God experience, and you're not going to feel a ding-dang thing, and you're going to walk out and say, what's wrong with me? And when I said every church has a liturgy, I stand by that. I believe that. And the question is, where did it come from, and is it helpful? And if if the liturgy was unintentional, I don't think that's very helpful. If the liturgy now makes my personal, emotional, psychological sense the arbiter of a good or a bad service, I don't think that's helpful. And this is why, as I watch this strange, beautiful man preach in the Maybe Center 20 years ago, my heart started to shift. See, the liturgy is the work of the people. Now, I want to draw your eyes down into the 12th verse of our text this morning. It's in that 12th verse where Paul famously says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So everybody say, work out. Okay. But look at the the next verse. For, so there's not a period at the end of 13. It's a semicolon. For it is God who is at work in you. So everybody say, work in. The only reason we work out is because God is working in. You see that? But it doesn't absolve us of working. John Wesley's commentary, when he preached this passage, he said, we learn at least two things because of this. Because God is working out, we can work in. We can work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we have the ability now. And the second thing is we must work. We can work and we must work. Liturgy, in its best definition, is the work of the people. So it's the reason we say things like, the Lord be with you. We can't leave that hanging out there with just the Lord be with you. You have to do the work with me. I can't do a liturgical service by myself. I can't say, lift up your hearts to the Lord. Yes. I can't, I, I can't do that. And I think we can all confess that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again is a lot more powerful when you are saying it. It's the work of the people. Christian liturgy started to take a shape, its shape as early as 
the middle of the first century, so around A.D. 50. By the time we get to the middle of the second century, A.D. 150, Justin, who's one of the fathers of the church, already has a liturgy in place. The liturgy of the early church was about a sense of flow and movement from one place of the Spirit to another place of the Spirit. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, verses 6 through 9 that we read this morning are part of the ancient liturgy. It's called by the church fathers the hymn to Christ. Most Bibles, when they even lay it out on the page, will lay it out like poetry because it's understood by an overwhelming consensus of historians and theologians that this is an ancient song that Paul is referencing, presuming the Philippians know the words. In other words, he's using their own liturgy to reinforce his appeal. What is his appeal? Have this mind that was in Christ Jesus. That's his appeal. His appeal is, I want you thinking like Jesus, loving one another like Jesus. Stop being selfish and start being selfless like Jesus. You know how the song goes. That's what basically is happening here. You know how it goes. This Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This Jesus, he's appealing to their own liturgical sensibilities. It's only in the last 200 years of revivalism that we've started to intentionally break away from the back and forth that we've just acted out and will continue to act out for the rest of the service. And that's because Christian worship is very much linked to Jewish worship. Because as we all know, the earliest members of of this community were Jewish. And Jewish worship was centered on a pattern. It says in Exodus that God came to Moses and says, I want you to build a tabernacle that I may dwell with you. And he says this, build it exactly according to the pattern I give you. And so I'm going to use an image here uh, so that we can look at this tabernacle and we notice that there are three segments or sections to this tabernacle, an outer court, an inner court, and the Holy of Holies. An outer court, inner court, and Holy of Holies. And what was understood in Jewish worship is as you move from east to west, from right to left, because that's where their writing is even done, right? From right to left. As you make this movement through the tabernacle, you have this increasing sense of the intensity of God's presence. It's not as God dwells in the entirety of this place. But as I move to the inner court, there's something that wasn't in the outer court. And as I move to the Holy of Holies, there's something that wasn't in the inner court. There's this sense of movement and continuity. And that's what Christian liturgy is built on, it's based on. So for us, this is why I'm such, I haven't done this here and I'm waiting till we really love each other well till I start doing this. But I'm a stickler for everybody being in the room when the service starts. Silence is deafening. (laughs) And I have the full support of my bishop when I say this. Why? Because it's like a train pulling out of a station. We're doing this together. And, and, and I don't want you running behind the train trying to grab on like a trolley car in San Francisco. Let's pull out of the station together. And here's what we find. In this uh, tabernacle, God is 
both the audience and the agent of worship. And this is foreign to me because I grew up saying what? I'm here for an audience of one. And it was like God sat in a big plush chair right there. And I was up here. Y'all were just kind of the supporting cast for us Pentecostal people. And, and I w- we were up here for an audience of one. And we were going to do our music to the best for an audience of one and preach for an audience of one. And what happens is in that moment, God is passive. And if I can be so bold, I'll talk about myself. I'm like a priest of Baal. Running around and dancing and cutting myself, hoping I can get him up out of his chair. And I would say things like, when the blessings come up, when the braces go up, excuse me, the blessings come down. It's bell worship. But when I come into a room and God is still the audience, but he's also the primary agent. He's the main actor. He's the one who's doing things. And at best, I get to participate in what he's doing when we get together. It's the reason that baptism is a sacrament in the church because I'm not going in the water to profess my faith. I'm going in the water so God can do something to me. So what happens when we get together to worship is our, in our outer court, God calls us to worship. We don't decide when we want to start worshiping. We don't start worshiping until God calls us to worship through Shelby. God forgives our sin, and he qualifies us to do the work and the liturgy. In the historical traditions of the church, maybe we'll start doing it here. They confess their sin before they ever do a thing. Remember that section in the New Testament where Paul says, I would that people everywhere would, would, would pray lifting up holy hands. And he says this, without wrath or doubting. Have you ever been in church and felt unqualified to worship because you know what you did this week? Okay. No, that's good. Everybody's like, nope. Not here. That works in other states. <laughs> Sometimes you may have lied. You may have been in a fight with a family member. You may have done all sorts of things that you know are not consistent with the life of Jesus and his gospel. And you come in here and somebody says, let's pray. Somebody says, let's sing. And you're like, not these hands. And that's why the church, in the outer court model, you find this altar. And this is where sin is dealt with. So in our tradition, the Christian tradition, the outer court, God calls us to worship, God forgives our sin, and God inhabits and is enthroned on our praises. You might remember this uh, from Psalm 100. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Make a joyful shout and bless his name. Why are we so joyful when we're just getting in the door? Because we realize the only reason we're in here is because God did something for us. That's it. That's our outer court. And then we move into the inner court. In the inner court, if we can look at it again, what we'll see is this table of shoe bread, golden candlestick, altar of incense, the bread that's put out there, do you remember Jesus in Matthew 4? He's in the desert and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. The word of God is very closely connected with bread. The candlestick, the light, the psalmist says in 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my 
path. So in our inner court experience, this is when we start to move into preaching, where God speaks to us through Scripture, and he feeds our soul through preaching. He renews our minds as we confess the creed, and the altar of incense is prayer. And this is why we've shifted some things around, and the liturgies have always put the prayers of the people after the preaching and after the confession of the creed, just like the altar of incense is a little bit beyond those table, that table and the lampstand because God prays through us in the prayers of the people. God blesses through us when we exchange the grace of peace. And God provides through us when we give like Jesus, generously, sacrificially, and cheerfully in our offerings. This is our inner court. And then we don't have the back of the service. Then we don't have like, oh, well, you know, these are sort of the the afterglow of the service. No, 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 no. We're still moving up. We're still pressing in in our liturgy to get to the Holy of Holies where God takes our hearts up into the heavens as we lift them up. Where God represents himself to us in the taking and the breaking of bread where God transforms and inhabits creation in very real yet mysterious ways. God blesses and he sends us out into the world, the liturgy says, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a liturgy that is thought through. This is a liturgy that is ancient. This is a liturgy of wisdom that goes far beyond the liturgies of the United States. The state's Just like every other nation has its anthem, we have our doxology. They have their Pledge of Allegiance. We have our creed. We have, uh, the States has the 4th of July and Memorial Day, and we're about to lean into Advent. We have all of the makings of a beautiful liturgy that's grounded in the ancient wisdom of the people of God. And what I'm saying is, it's not going to displace the Holy Spirit. It's not going to quash or kill the vibrancy of your faith. What it is, as Bishop Ed so beautifully says, is it's like a trellis. It's strong and it's stable, and it allows the life of the Spirit to climb up and thrive in a vibrant way, like flowers climbing a trellis. On some level, we participate by faith and in the Holy Spirit in all of these things, the outer court, inner court, holy of holies, Shelby's calling us to worship, but God is calling us to worship through her. She's working out while God is working in. I'll stand up here and I'll say the Lord be with you and you'll say and also with you. But it's God who's moving all of us if we have faith in the Holy Spirit. This is the primary way that we work out our salvation. The simple sequence is this. Have this mind, in our Philippians 2 text, have this mind of the one who was emptied out, of the one who was obedient, of the one who went to the cross, of the one who is now highly exalted. And if you have your Bible, I do want you to look at the 10th verse, and this is where we close. It says, so that the name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue should confess. I want to just draw your attention to that, so that. 
because this is important. The bending and the confessing are liturgical acts. The bowing down on our knees, the confessing with our tongues, these are liturgical acts. As a matter of fact, the liturgy is scripted for us here by Paul. What are we going to confess? There's going to be one line, and it's going to be three words, or in this case, four, sorry, translation. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the liturgy Paul's describing. But notice, Jesus was emptied. Jesus was obedient. Jesus was crucified. And Jesus has been exalted so that you could bend your knee and open your mouth. You see that? Sometimes Bible translators, in moving from Greek to English, will insert connecting words to help the text make more sense to us in English. Here's what I want you to know. This so that is in the Greek. It is there. It is hina, H-I-N-A. It is in the Greek. Paul's making it very clear. That because Jesus emptied himself, because Jesus was obedient, because Jesus was crucified, and because the Father has exalted him, you now can bend your knee and open your mouth. You can do the work of the people. Because Jesus, who is the way, the outer court, the truth, the inner court, and the life, the holy of holies, has come to us and revealed himself to us. For me, this has been a 13-year journey of having my imagination renewed, of having my conscience rewired so that now when I start to hear certain songs and certain prayers and certain rhythms, something comes alive in me that's more eternal than the United States of America. As grateful as I am for my country and I consider myself a patriot, it is not the kingdom of God. It will not be here a million years from now. But the kingdom of God, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is eternal. It was, it is, and it will be. And this liturgy, it enculturates me as a citizen of that kingdom. That's what this does. That's what this does. It liberates the sermon and the music from being the end all, which, which frees up the singers and the preachers from having to be spectacular. We're not the star of the show. We're here to just get the thing moving towards what? Towards this holy of holies table where God's presence is mysteriously revealed in glory. And suddenly we have real sacraments. In low church, preaching and singing is the sacrament. We now have something that Jesus says is my body and is my blood. This is us celebrating the mystery of the Eucharist, not as an addendum, a PS, or the back end of the service. This is us realizing we've been on an upward trajectory since we were called to worship, and we're going somewhere in the spirit. We're moving from one dimension to another dimension of God's presence. And this relieves everybody in this room from walking out of here and feeling less than because you didn't feel the presence of God the way somebody next to you did. Let's pray together.
God, this morning I stand before you and I personally thank you for your patience, your faithfulness, your perspective, and the ways in which my life has been changed, the ways in which my life has been enriched and reformed. My prayer is for this house this morning. For anybody who has been intimidated or put off or just merely tolerated the liturgical aspect of worship, this morning I pray, oh God, that your Holy Spirit would permeate our hearts and minds and bring us in a unified sense to that place where we see the ancient wisdom of the liturgy. And we don't have to choose between the beautiful flowering life of the Spirit and the strength of liturgical practices, but the two can come together. I pray that this house would be a house that worships you in spirit and in truth, which is what you're seeking for. Help us to that end. We're not able in our own strength, but because you work in us to will and to do your good pleasure, we are able. And so we praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.